Hello, welcome to the Seven Ways Podcast on Safer Shoftim, the Book of Judges. This is Season 3 of the Seven Ways Podcast, the Downstream from Religion series. The purpose of this podcast is to show you how the Book of Judges reflects the problems and issues for today and to put down our thoughts on how to understand the Book of Judges. Growing up, I often visualized everybody in the Tanakh, the scriptures, everybody in the Talmud, and the Gemara is pretty much all looking the same with the same turbans and robes. So actually studying this together helps us to give, to give definition to the people. We are on chapter 17. This famous incident called Pesomicha, the idol of Micah, uh, Micah is this Micha fellow is considered extremely awful person for what he is about to do. The Midrash even ponders if he should be put with the four Hediotos, the four non kings that do not receive a share in the world to come. He somehow was able to scrounge together this idol with thoughts or ideas or magic. Um, obviously, um, you know, biblical magic. Or um, it's a midrash, meaning something else. He was able to scrounge this together. He perhaps had the idea or the idol itself going through the Red Sea. When he had this idol, it's a little underscored in the sentences here, but the midrash says that it was not far from the real Mishkan in Shiloh, the real house of love and prayer, the temple, the real Jewish temple in Shiloh, where it stood for over 300 years, and the smoke would mix together. The angels wanted to knock off, to bump, to kill Micha. But God said, don't do it, because he fed people who traveled along the way. That's a famous dictum. God cares more about the honor of man than his own honor. So people... In the generation of the dispersion, because they work together, they receive a lighter punishment than the people in the times of the flood. The Mabo versus the Dorflaga. The times of the flood, they just hurt each other. There was less Benadam Lechavero, less interpersonal properness. And the, the, they worked together in the Tower of Babel. So here, he's so bad, he should have been killed. He's just awful. So let's go through some of the story, ask the major questions, and bring a few key midrashim to help understand him and who he comes in contact with. Yud Zion Aleph 17.1 There was a man from the Mount Ephraim. His name was Michayahu. Called Micha as well, same person. Very often Hashem's name is dropped from people. Uh, here it's dropped. I'm putting it out there because... He's unholy. Research it. Let me know what your commentaries say. But immediately, this Harafrim stands out. We constantly bump into tribes and people from either the Yehuda or the Yosef lineages. So we, as we mentioned, the Yesod tribes, these Yosef descendants tribes, they have this Midas Yisod, a way to use the connective 
faculty, interpersonal, and charisma, and or psychology, sociology, business, dynamic, interactive, connective, social. They're able to harness this at a high level. However, at the same time, this easily leads to secular culture and idolatry. And as I sit here on Hanukkah in 2021, 5782, this is what my rabbi, my rabbis tied into these parshas, these weekly Torah portions that we're dealing with. This disagreement between Yehuda and the brothers and Yosef, you know, how much can you be involved in the physical world, the secular world? Well, Yosef saved them through physical business means. So the secular world, you know, the, these, uh, the Hellenists, these Greeks, they did have a lot of good inventions, but those inventions could lead one astray. So it is good to advance the secular world. It's really a, it's a holy endeavor over there. But at the same time, there has to be boundaries and filters. So already this, this is a man, Ish, who is in Harfraim. He's susceptible to outside influence. And that's what happens. He said to his mother, Elif umiyah kesef, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, and you cursed whoever stole it. I heard it in my ears. It was me. I took it. So you would expect, you'd expect his mother to say, you'd expect his mother to say, you are cursed. You should be punished. You should not do this. His mother says, Blessed is my son to Hashem. Totally the opposite. And he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. His, his mother said, you know, I had decided to give that money to Hashem to make a carved image and a molten image. So I will give it back to you. You will see implicit in the story is a type of shudfus that they believed in Hashem, Akash Baruch Hu, the Jewish God, but they make molten idols, which is forbidden, and they keep going down that road to perdition to create other idols and worship them. So there's, there's extreme ignorance and or the desire for idolatry here. So they're going to make this molten image. He returned the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, gave it to the silversmith. He made it into a carved image and a molten image. It remained in his house. He made a house of idolatry. Very bizarre exchange, like a son being giddy in front of his mother. That he stole from her? Uh, or is the son and the mother, are the son and the mother the only people in the house here? She should say, knock it off. You're punished. You get time out. You need to go to the rabbi to study. You need to go given over to the authorities for doing idolatry. Doesn't happen. She enables him. So, hey, sentence five, verse five. This man, Micha, he had a house of idolatry. Boom. The God part of his name is gone. He made an ephod and different icons. So again, ephod is that special apron. If you remember, Gidon accidentally made that. It became a stumbling block. He installed one of his sons to be a priest. Interesting. He wants to give his son an option to be <laughs> a 
a Kohen. But he lo le Kohen. He appointed him to be a Kohen. In those days, there was no king among the Jewish, among Israel. Every man did what he wanted. So why do we hear this poetic interlude? I mean, it should be in the entire book. What is that underscore here in this uh, story? What, why, what is, is it explaining what's going on? Is it preparing us? It's, it's been pretty lawless, pretty kingless through this whole book. Okay, Zion. There, there was a Na'ar, there was a young man from Bethlehem, Yehuda, from Bethlehem in Yehuda, that's farther down south in our triangle, from of a family of Judah, who was a Levite, he lived there. So basically it means that he he's he not from Judah, could be his mother's from Judah, but most likely the commentaries say he lived in Judah, and he was a Levite. So obviously the Kohanim, the, or someone's a Kohen, they do the high-level priestly service, Levium, who are from the same tribe as the Kohen, the Levi tribe, they do singing and arranging and uh, gatekeeping. This is a Levite. Perhaps his name was Levi, but it seems to be he was a Levi. Different opinions. So he went from this base Lechem to find a place to live, and he came up to the middle of the country to Harifrayim to stay. Now, just, just so you have the visual down, picture that pyramid triangle. Turn that sucker 90 degrees counterclockwise, so the point is to the left. That point touches Egypt over there. The point, squish, it, squish that triangle a little bit, so it's kind of narrow going up. That is Israel going up along the coast, and the right side is the Jordan River, the right side of the triangle. On the other side of the triangle, those two and a half tribes live. But as you go up that triangle, most of the tribes live as you go up. Um, but... You know, parallel to the point of the triangle is a imagine a line cuts the triangle in half, has sideways latitude. Going down is that desert, the beginning of the Sinai Peninsula. Go back up to that horizontal line. It goes from you know Egypt and the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, over to the Dead Sea. So you have there. You know, recently in our story with Shimshon, you had done. And then part a lot of the tribe of Shimon, Judah, over to the Dead Sea. So in Beislechem Yehuda, this man lived, and he went up north. So as you go up north, you have a hit Ephraim and then Menashe. Ephraim had this huge mountain, Harphraim, and this lady bumps into Micha. Bumps into him. Micha said to him, Where are you going? He said to him, I'm a lady. Here's where I'm from. Da -da -da. And Micha said to him, Live with me. Be to me a father and a Kohen. That's strange. I mean, he's asking him to be his, like his stepfather. I guess the Kohen is the Av part. Ask him to be a Kohen. Now that's pretty full of ignorance. Okay, a lady is going to be a Kohen. And I will give you ten. Let me make sure the numbers are right here. Ten pieces, ten pieces of silver per year, a set of clothes, and your livelihood. So the Levite went in. He desired to settle with the man. And the lad, again, Na'ar. 
this is uh, Yudaf, 11. The lady began to live with the man Ish. So this is called Nish again. And the Na'ar, this lady, is now called a boy. And he was like one of the sons. And by Yamale, Micha Siyad Halevi, Micha inaugurated this Levi. And the Na'ar was a Kohen, and he lived in base Micha. And Micha said, Now I know Hashem is doing good to me because he sent me this Levi to be a Kohen. And again, Yilchas Aleph, the next, the next uh, sentence, which is the same paragraph, if you look at Psuchos and Stumos. If you look at the physical paragraph without these chapters, which are really from Christians, there's no open separation margin. There's no closed one. Same paragraph. The uh, underscore the idea. There's no king. Shavit Dunn was looking for an inheritance. All right, so let's pause over here. I think I think it's a good time to do the main idea, the key ideas, and then. Go to the rest of the story, but just to fill you in on the story here. So, you know, Judah again, Yehuda is in the middle of the country. We need to go back in time because even though rationalists, Radak, and these people understand that these stories are all in chronological order, we had all of those Shoftim going through the Spheros and then Shimshon, Radak, and some others learned that this Pesomicha, idol of Micah, and Pelegish Begiva, the concubine of Giva, happened after all those Shoftim, because that's the way it arrives to us in the book. Others, many others, Seder Olam, other commentaries understand these stories actually happened earlier in chronology, and they're out of order. Now, I think they're out of order to finish the book up on two dramatic, poignant notes. We're not used to this literary tool because usually in our media lives, um, really good directors put something dramatic at the beginning of the story, capture your attention, people lose interest. <laughs> but in these ancient books and people sat and focused, um, it's uh, leaving us on two dramatic notes. We go back in time. If you remember, Yehoshua ben Nun passes away. And they're under the rule of Kushan Rishasayim, the you know Kushan the double wicked, for eight years before um, Asniel ben Kanaz comes to wipe him out. So people understand that this story happened back then, when there was no leader, even Yehoshua, who's not a king, but he's you know a strong leader then. At that time, certain amount of religious fervor and understanding, but we see from here that there's a certain amount of ignorance and susceptibility to a Vodazara idolatry. That's the background, that's the time period. So, not all of the Shvatim, not all of the tribal jurisdictions have been set up. And Kind of let let your mind open up here. Forget about all the set tribes that we've had and everything. So Judah, Yehuda has gone into Israel back in that time. And they're living down there farther south by the middle of the belt of Israel. With them is Shevet Dun, the tribe of Dan. They're living in two cities there. 
And they remember in the Torah it says, Dun is described as Yizanik Mehabashan. It suckles, it nurtures from the Bashan area. So the Bashan area is farther up north. So you go along the Jordan River up north, follow that path, and you get to the Kinneret Sea up north. And to the right of that's called Bashan, Og Melech Bashan, right? On the other side of the Jordan River, farther north. So Danites travel from Yehuda where they're staying up north to look for wonderful land. And just to make it more confusing, uh, they call a city, they end up renaming a city there, Dun. And then they go back down eventually to where we spoke about with Shimshon over there by the point of the triangle by the unconquered land of the Philistines, uncircumcised Philistines. So you have kind of this traveling triangle over the course of these centuries over here. Okay, that sets up the uh, rest of the story. Okay, so let's get into, now that we have the land set up, let's get into Micha. There is a famous Midrash that speaks about Micha. We are going to analyze this and use this as a centerpiece for our ideas today, as well as a secondary Midrash that operationalizes it as a vehicle. So Micha, this is Sanhedrin, Kuf, Aleph, and Mabez, and Rashi over there. Micha, why is it called Micha? It means crushed. Should have gotten squished in the building. Shalmitzrayim in Egypt. Double comma there threw me off. So, He was built into the building in the place of a brick. And when Moshe says, Why do you do such bad to this nation? Instead of being put as a brick in the building, as a little baby, something else happened to Micha. God says to Moshe, Kotsim Haim Machalim. These Egyptians are just destroying thorns. Shegoloi Lafonov. It was already revealed in front of a Baruch Hu, God, Im Haim Chayim Yirusham Gemurim. If these murdered babies were to survive, they would be completely wicked. Vim Tirtse Tanase. Hey, Moshe, God says. If you want to, you can try it out. Try out my theory. Moshe took out one of the babies, and it turned out to be Micha, the man who created idol and led many astray into violence. So, again, Midrashim are not meant to be taken literally. They are meant to give us concepts, you know, give us ideas. Um, you know, did Micha really live that long? According to Radak, he, he would have lived hundreds of years, way too long, realistically. And if this story took place at the beginning, I mean, what Kadosh Baruch Hu, would God put in the hands of Moshe something so destructive as a test? I mean, couldn't Kadosh Baruch Hu just visualize it for him as he visualized the menorah? Does Moshe, you know, does Moshe need to play this assistant God role and see demonstrably someone caused so much damage. Rather, 
this midrash is meant to be taken conceptually. The events most likely did not happen. The events are meant to be taken here metaphorically. So in order to really parse out the meaning here, we must have two different interpretations that are related. Let's start with the philosophical, and then we will go to the sociological, psychological. So philosophically, this Midrash is telling us that we don't know why tragedies happen. We don't understand why the Jewish people suffer. It's a horrible thing. It's considered bad in terms of people suffering in the world. But philosophically, in terms of God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's plan, we can't quite say it's wholly bad. We never quite know when people die if it is a totally bad thing. The reason why we get so upset is because it's, we get emotional about it. We're overwhelmed with upsetness when we hear about the Holocaust, the 6 million, the 10 million. We're overwhelmed with being bothered about suffering, especially children. So we can give answers. We can give answers about people. This is their only chance to go to heaven, to Ghanaian. This is their, their punishment that gives them expiation of the soul, gives them a kapara. You know, but we never really want to give a specific reason for a punishment because it bothers people, it offends people. I never refrain from doing something that's offensive if it's the truth, but you definitely don't want to uh, say that you know God's will because maybe it'll be counter, you know, counter, contraindicated. Uh, you know, perhaps it will be too much for someone who's being emotional. Perhaps we're off about this topic. But at the, at the end of the day, Moshe here is a symbol as Netzach, a symbol for absolute truth, Torah Semes. As a symbol for that, this Midrash is teaching us philosophically we need to remove our question and trust that God has an answer. But let us get into the psychological. So, Moshe Rabbeinu is someone who's described as having a tremendous intellect and passing along knowledge in the written and the oral Torah. However, he also is described as by Yar Sam. He also has a, a point about him, even though his demeanor is sort of analytic and gruff, that he has tremendous mercy. He's the father where Aharon acts like the mother. So when Moshe Rabbeinu says, why are you doing such bad to this nation? Hashem says, let's test it out. Oh, it's bad. This is talking about permissibility. Being overly permissive as a father, or I'm going to say, being overly permissive through the absence of the father. And let's get to another Midrash, and you'll see how they both relate. This is Rashi, Sanhedrin, Kufkumal, Base. When Moshe wrote Hashem's name on a piece, and he threw it into the Nile River, the Aaron of Yosef, the coffin of Yosef came up, Micha came and snatched the name of Hashem. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Israel were passing through the Yam Suf, Avar Micha came with them, Shabiyado Hashem la Sosa Ego, in his hand was Hashem's name to make the golden calf. I believe that Midrash means as follows. As we spoke about, the Yosef abilities are extremely 
potent. When you have a Moshe, when you have a filter of Hashem's name, and then you elevate the powerful Yisod Mida, you will be kosher and effective. But if you're Micha, if you're someone who analyzed how to activate the potent Mida of Yisod, but you lack Netzach, you lack paternal instruction, you will go awry. If you lack the Halacha of Torah, which is considered a paternal gift and teaching, you will go awry even though you'll be very effective. This is the problem with Micha. Now let's go back to our story. It begins with a boy who has no father. He has a single mother. There's no one to tell him, knock it off. And this whole knock it off is exactly what the king does as well. Matudas David writes here, and it says, Ein melech b'Yisrael. This echoed multiple times statement of there's no king in Israel. That's why everyone did what they wanted. Nobody would protest and say, knock it off. You know, the other day, it was Arab Shabbos, we were busy, and I told my sons to cut it out. You know, cut it out, your bad behavior. Oh, my son's visiting here late at night. He's listening. Cut, cut it out, <laughs> and, and then they cut. They stopped doing their mischief, and they started helping with the Shabbos, Yantif, no, sorry, Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, Hanukkah, triple whammy blessing, triple blessing preparations. And they said to me, you know, the security guards at our school also say, cut it out. I've never heard that before. So they, you know, cut it out, knock it off. There are two male security guards, former police officers, Shoftim for Shoftim. You, you, you need a father and a home for certain reasons. And let me give some some preambles. Let me give some explanations. Not just so we don't offend people, but so we're very clear. Okay? Men and women each have a side to them that's more generous and kind and more uptight laying down the law. Women have hod and gavura. The hod of a woman comes... When she sees someone in trouble, she's activated to help more than a man. She'll take less money for it, watch more children, sacrifice. Gavura. The woman's gavura makes it so that she has elevated desire to have protection in the home, make boundaries, safety. The man, corresponding to the hod, is his man's chesed. Men have uh, non-emotional giving, providing. They're also flooded more emotionally and bothered. Um... Women are can handle eight out of nine types of pain better than men, but men can handle the grunt work better than women, which quantitatively is usually more in society. And men have the Natsach, the higher testosterone, which leads to analytic faculty and physical strength. Okay? So mother and father can both learn how to do discipline or rewards. You know, just because there's no father in the home doesn't automatically mean bad things about the family. If there's a single father, there can be giving and boundaries. If there's a single mother, giving and boundaries. We're talking about susceptibilities here, okay? And also, when a father's not in the home, it's not always because, you know, oh, he's a huge, awful person, okay? It's very complex why fathers are not in the home. It could be because both parties had, both father and mother, husband and wife, had... Complaints and positive behaviors they did, they didn't work it out. 
I do. I personally do couples therapy, and I can tell you, there's not been a case yet where I thought both people could not improve, and both people had good qualities to them. Now, when someone actually strikes someone else, there's a certain line that's crossed where it's oh, it's wrong. Relationship could be ended then. If it's consistent verbal abuse, could be ended then. You know, affairs and things. Fine. There's a certain line that's crossed. Things could be ended, but. Whether it's those circumstances or, you know, the normal circumstance of bickering and fighting and not humbling each, each, each party doesn't humble themselves to grow and increase the positive. The issues are much more complicated, okay? Very often, the man gets very angry and frustrated and walks out. But again, stonewalling, according to John Gottman, is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, causes divorce. But people stonewall because they don't want to yell and get mad. That's also positive. And when a man works more than a full-time job, and he's expected to do more housework, and he's expected to be patient with the children, and he's expected to be perfectly smiling all the time, accept criticism from his wife and not criticize her, etc., etc., I can see why men get frustrated. I help facilitate communication between men and women with God's help, put down the boxing gloves, learn, learn each other's language, both grow together and emphasize the positive. And also, you know, family systems theory. That's my background. A whole family or a coupleship, two people, it's really a unit on its own. It's not like A causes B. One person's a jerk, the other person's a victim. That can happen when you cross the line. But in the escalation of the conflict, almost always two parties take part in it. There's not what we call circular causality. A causes B. A ball is thrown into, and a bat is hit, hits it in baseball. Throw a ball, hit it with a bat. That's linear causality. But there's complex interactions and micro-interactions in families and couples that you have to undo the patterns. Much more complex. So I'm definitely not saying if a father's not in the home, it's automatically the father's fault. And even if the father's more demonstrative and quote-unquote guilty, you know, mothers need to improve as well. So all I'm talking about is, Father's not in the home, or father's not knowing what to do. And that's a big thing, too. It takes a lot more study to be a husband and a father to understand what to do than a mother. Mothers have more of an instinct about what to do. But again, many women don't know what to do with parenting and being a wife. And frankly, I don't think anyone really knows how to communicate as a couple. I don't think anyone knows how to do parenting. I think we all need to study. We're decent, we're decent at it, or we're poor. But we all need to study. But the question is, what happens when you have a society with a lot of fatherless homes? We shall start with Shoftim. And then we'll go into modern day and other reasons. Shoftim. This Ish, this man Micha, goes from being called an Ish to a Nar. And this Levi, they go, he's also called an Ish. And he's called a Nar. Nar means someone who's young. Young and inexperienced, just like Yosef. I mean, they could be ambitious, they could be creative. Young people often have great ideas, much more than the stuff the old people. Their minds are not truncated yet, but lacking experience. You got basically here. You got two picture nowadays. You got two teenage boys opening up a synagogue, and they mix in the synagogue, you know, an inappropriate music. Secular culture could be literally idolatry, some other religion, 
nowadays, plenty of people doing idolatry. So, when you have a situation of a mother and a son, and I grew up this way, so I can speak from first-hand experience. And if you didn't, you can still research it. You can still speak too. But I went to my father every other weekend and on Mondays, so I learned a lot from him about cooking and about um, playing ball. And in the and growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was told, oh, your parents are divorced. How old are you when your parents are divorced? Right, parents are divorced. Oh, your father must have been a jerk and your mom was so nice. So I grew up being like, hey, absent father. But then I worked in Baltimore City and I'm like, oh, no, those fathers are absent, absent. And I realized, wow, my father had an impact on me in all the key ways. Playing ball, a little bit of self-defense, cooking, joking around, um, lightening, lightening things up. So at the same time, though, even though a person can get a lot from their father in a smaller amount of time than daily, the mother has this instinct. A mother has an instinct to spoil her son because she feels bad for him, but she also has an instinct to turn to the male in the household because the way it works is man chesed, man gives. He said, I think this is what we should do. That's the chesed nitzak. I think we should do this. What do you think, honey? Then the woman feels like the man has an opinion. If she, Again, go back to the Devorah Barak stuff. If a man, oh, honey, if man's always like, honey, what do you want? Do you want? It's pathetic. If a man is a dictator and pushing his agenda, that's not proper. There's a certain give and take within the home. I got to do more parentheses here before I get back to Micha because I wanted to mention something important as well. You know, before 1960s, right, there was, there was a structure in the home that is closer to this more efficient, proper structure of men and women. So men really, really making sure they provide, women making sure their structure in the home and nurturing, that is good. There's a second layer. Picture two blocks, Tetris blocks here. The second layer is, of course, men at the time took advantage of this. Many were abusive when it comes to, when it comes to, um, sorry, we got a whole, we got a whole crowd here tonight, in the middle of the night, um, uh, let me concentrate again. When it comes to, you know, chil children used to be obedient to the parents, but the wife was also obedient to the husband. Uh, check out Positive Discipline, the introduction. She, they, those females tie in this to the shift in parenting, that we don't make children obedient. The fear-based model, we look to empower them. We Firm but kind. We are in charge. As parents, we give the guidelines but we need to get them to think of their own solutions, okay? So that the first layer is good. The general structure of the proper home is there. On top of that, we need to take away the, the, the male chauvinism, the paternal aggression and, and uh, frankly, abuse. And on top of that, you put teaching men and women how to be co-leaders of the family, men taking initiative, women responding, circle of giving, and at the end of the day, you could argue that the man is the head of the household because, you know, if everyone's exhausted after a trip, the man has to push himself to bring the family in. He's physically stronger. He has a lot of influence. But what, what a woman lacks in the power and influence, she makes up for it in um, the reciprocal influence of him and setting the tone in the home. So there's a co-leadership. There's, there's a certain, quote-unquote, respect for the man. 
but maybe different type of respect for women. You have equal rights, different needs, different just different structure in how you do things. Okay. Now that we understand that, we understand you, do, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't say, well, the general structure in the 50s and earlier was good, but because a lot of men were chauvinists, didn't know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's make total anarchy. Let's rethink the entire family, the structure of the home. No, 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 no. That's what's going to get us into trouble, as we shall see when we bring a certain um, article in. Okay. That talks about other ways that we lose um, children to fatherlessness. So picture a time when Israel's going into the land of Israel. Children of Israel are going into the land of Israel. Many people are knowledgeable and observant. Many people are not. Picture Micha's father running away to engage in a Vodazar. Each of Vodazar, we said, has a Rios, right? His father perhaps ran away to go do the Rios and to enjoy himself, to throw off the yoke of heaven, to make things much easier on himself, leaving him fatherless. We spoke a lot about male and female when it came to idolatry, improper archetype. Perhaps if his father didn't want to be have fortitude and strength, didn't want to listen to the criticism of the mother and respond to it and fix his shortcomings, fix the family. And perhaps the mother herself, perhaps the mother was influenced by idolatry. She's looking for someone who is a Zeus hero, but her, her husband who has his foibles, warts and all, she does not accept him, warts and all. That's how we that's how marriage works. You accept your partner, warts and all. Thirty one percent of things you can change. Sixty nine percent of things that couples fight about you cannot change. Gottman researched. Therefore you need to let go. He is here without a father. Parents chose not to work it out, not to be kosher. And his mother is used to spoiling him. His mother could do discipline, but she chooses not to. She has a susceptibility to be spoiling him, enabling him. So when he says to her, it's almost giddy. Look at this. <laughs> I took this money from you, mommy. Remember, you cursed the person that took the money? It was me. And she says, whoa, I'm at a crossroads here. I can rebuke this fool who might attack me or I've already reinforced that I spoil him so much I can't really change that. All right. You want to make a molten image? Baruch B'ni Hashem. Okay, we can have a, we can have a molten... You want a molten image? You, can have, you, have, you have three Nintendos? You can have another Nintendo. Okay, it's great. Have another one on top of that. So they go and they make this image and he's so happy that he's making this base of Odazara. No one is here to teach him the laws of Avodazara, the laws of Hashem, the first two of the Aserah Sedibros. No one's here to instruct him. No one's here to say, knock it off. The king is not here to say, knock it off on a higher level. And there's no father here to say, knock it off on a lower level. He's called a Na'ar then. And he meets this Levi who he, who he turns into a Kohen and what does he say? Micha said to him, imadi la'af. You can be a hey, you can be a father to me. I'm gonna fire my son who I hired as someone who's an altar boy to serve here. I need a paternal figure here. An Avala Kohen. And I need a priest here. Yo, this is great. If you remember, Yosef is called Av Reich, right? 
He's called Avu Patron. He's called a father, a father figure, a leader, a paternal leader. That's the, the, it harkens back to Moshe from the Midrash. And he'll, he will support him. He support his own father. Backwards, right? So going back to that Midrash, when Moshe says, don't hurt that child, that is symbolic of a paternal person, a father, saying, I need, you know, I need to be lenient. We should be lenient on this boy. I don't think this student should be have any consequences to his actions. Like a teacher, a principal saying no consequences. And let me tell you something. After working as a um, therapist outside contract in public school system, I can tell you no child left behind is every child left behind. If you have several students in each class who have no consequences, they don't have alternative schools anymore, everyone suffers. The Midrash is telling us that being overly permissive is a problem. There's overly permissive tendencies when there's no father in the home. So this boy is off the rails. He's already hiring his own father in an improper way. Made a house of Vodazara. No one told him to knock it off. And they live together. He thinks he did something good. This Levy fellow is here. There's no Melch in Israel. And let's get into this Levy fellow. But remember, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. If you picture all of Israel being each family is one chain, every family that is weak with traditional values, Torah values, that leads to the whole entire entity being weakened. Rabbi Yochanan Zweig, my Rosh Hashiva from Miami, she, Rosh Hashiva Emeritus now, he said this idea with regards to Yisias Mitzrayim and, Pace, and uh, Mitzrayim. So while the Jewish people were sitting and eating according to their families, strengthening their families, studying, talking about Mitzrayim, connecting that bond between father and son, mother and father, son and daughter, the generations, the elders, they ate with the Zikanim. Jewish people strengthening their home. The Egyptians were exposed as adulterers, having no home, no solid nuclear unit. It was all just overlapping, no boundaries, like breaking a bunch of eggs together. And there's no strong chain. There's no strong link in that chain. But they were strengthening the links in leaving Egypt. And here, the each link in the chain is being exposed as a fatherless entity. These men are exposed as pathetic boys. This lady is engaging in asinine behavior. This guy, he knows better. There's this famous midrash that's almost a joke. We have to make sense of it. So in the Pasuk over here, these people come from the tribe of Dun. They're again, they're living in Yehuda, which makes sense if you think about it. If Dun has Gevura Mida, they're harnessing, even if it's a secondary Mida. And Yehuda is Malchus, 
Dibur and Malchus go together. They're both those aggressive Midos. Aggressive-ish Midos. So these Danites are traveling and they come across this house of love and idolatry. Not far from Shiloh, the house of love and prayer, the Mishkan. So they have, in this sentence here, there's rapid fire questions, and it leaves room for the Gomorrah, the famous Gomorrah, Baba Basra, to Darshan. They recognize the voice of a Na'ar Halevi. I assume it means he was singing. Maybe, maybe they had a distinct voice in those days. And they deviated from the path to go there. They said, Mi haviach halom amatas oseh. So rapid fire three questions. The Gemara fills in the gaps. They said to him, Don't you come from Moshe that says Altikrav Halom? Don't come close to here. What's in your hand? So you have sanctity of places, uh, um, godly Hashakapratis magic in your hand. Special man. It says by Moshe, Don't you come from Moshe? Hashem says, Stand with me in the holy place. You are a Kohen to avoid a Zara. What is going on here? You're a Levi and you're a Kohen. You, you come from holy stock. Presumably you were just in a Levite city doing Levite things. He said to him, Oh, I have a tradition from my grandfather. A person should rent himself to avoid a Zara and not need people to support him but he didn't realize that what's really going on is it's work that's foreign to him that's what he really meant as it says Rav said to Rav Huna you should skin skin dead animals in the marketplace and take your money and don't think that you have made a denigration of God's name because it says that a Tamil Chacham should never have grease in his garment. He should never really do anything to make people hate Hashem because people look at rabbis as representatives of Hashem and if they do anything bad, people hate Hashem. But you, if, you, if it's work, there's no Zila Milsa. Nothing is denigratory when it comes to work. Work is respectable. And once David saw that this Micha fellow loved the money, he appointed, no, no, the this lady, sorry, this Yehonasan. Once David saw that Mammon was beloved to this Levite, he put him in charge of the storehouses, as it says, Veshubuel ben Gershom ben Manasha, Otsros. Was it really Shabuel? Wasn't his name Yehonasan? But his name was Shabuel because Shab Leobachol Levavo, he did repentance and returned to God with all of his heart. So this Yehonasan fellow had a special spot, as it says in Devarim in the Chronicles book that chronicles all the different people in Tanakh, most of them. So, okay, great. There's not, there's no, no work is really too too denigratory, unless you're really stinky or whatever. Look at the Gemara Chagiga, but I mean, go back to what it said before. Is this a sitcom? Is this a sitcom or? Or a movie where people are self-denigratory, where they act stupid. Did, did someone really think that you're allowed to do idolatry to make money? I mean, really? That sounds like some stereotype right there. But I've met people from all cultures who fit that stereotype. 
In any event, this is a midrash. It probably has a Vodazara, a Vodashazarlo as a memory device because oral Torah is meant to be memorized as the Mishnah. Sometimes the Mishnah means the opposite, but it's easier to memorize. A midrash sound. A mid, this midrash is memorable because it's so seems to be silly, but it's not. So let's use the uh, commentary of the Rashbam to understand this. So Rashbam understands that if someone is trying to make make a living, trying to make money, but he might make a mistake and say to himself, I'm going to do idolatry, but my heart's not in heaven. This is a big mistake, and... I'm going to add this into our categories of why someone does a Bodhisattva. And it's a major problem. We're talking about another enabler here. Micha's mother is an enabler straight up, fully out there. And think back to this being part of Hode. Aharon Cohen does not have a lot of sentences here. But look at what he did around the Egel Hazahav, the golden calf. He actually part participated in creating of it, and he needs a certain type of kapara for that, right? But he doesn't really do it in worship. No, really. He's he's forestalling them. So Chazal say, well, he saw Chur get murdered in front of him, so he didn't want that. At the same time, it makes it so poignant, because if someone has Midas Sahod, and they're empathetic, and they see the uniqueness, uniqueness in an individual, they will be susceptible to being too kind, enabling, not saying knock it off. That hode, whether a man or woman has that mita, can be too giving. And then the Netzach mita, people found Moshe to be more difficult to deal with. They did not mourn him as long as Aharon. Aharon made peace. Moshe was annoying for them, but he was right. He's out of line, but he's right. He's annoying, but he's right, right? So, you know, coming back to our story, this Levi, acting as a Kohen, Levi are supposed to be almost a chalik. They have I really believe they, they have a chalik of Netzach there within their personality. And also some Gevur structuring. And Kohanim have this hode about them. And perhaps this poor, this Hanukkah right now, the, the you know, Hashmonaim showed that they, the Kohanim showed that they will lay the smack down and stop when there's badness going on. Maybe that's a tikkun for the Aharon weakness. But in any event, Micha's mother enabling, being too lenient, and this Levi acting as a Kohen, out of, acting out of character, not only in his rituals, but in his enabling kindness. This is another prototype for idolatry. You know, in the 19, was the 50s? Orthodox rabbis didn't have as many jobs, so they would go to a conservative temple, there's no machitza, but everyone's orthodox there. And that, I'm sure at the time they got heterium and they did a lot of good work, but at the same time it's dangerous because you can go somewhere where something is wrong and then end up keeping that alive for a long time. So, of course, if this levy does a Vodazara in, in action, even if his heart is not into it, of course it's usser. But at the same time, it's another warning here. This is another warning about 
not partaking in things to be nice to enable them. At a certain point, you have to say no. And one of my uh, female students said to me, well, what about the XYZ situation? Shouldn't we be nice? Da, da, da. What do I tell my kid? And I said, you know what? At a certain point, you just cannot explain it away. We see you're always nice to people, but you have to tell your child you don't agree with that action. I do not agree with that action. And she said, you know what? You're right. There has to be a line. We can't be influenced by a secular culture, even though, hashtag Yisod, we can take certain wisdoms from that culture, taking the wisdoms, technology, math, from the Greeks. And that sets up the whole rest of the story here. So these people from Dun come along. They go from the south to the north. They, they see Micha there. They end up stealing his... <laughs> stealing his Avodazar, imagine. It's like stealing someone's illegal cash and they chase after you. Um, these five, five strong men come down. They end up stealing his items. They kill the Tzedonim up north. They say to the Kohen, come with us. And he starts to say something and they say, put your mouth, hand in your mouth, shut your mouth, come with us. Don't you want to be a Kohen to the whole nation? And that little piece of arrogance, that little piece of gaiva, ends up having him say, yeah, sure, I want to do that, yeah. So you can be rich and famous, idolater. There's Aphod and Trophim. And Apostle, this molten image, Trophim, image of people. And I think some of the commentaries say by Laban, when Rachel took the Trophim, that's actually dead babies. So again, you have the type of idolatry you have here is being reflective of young children messing around with adult things. Um, people, you know, once again here are not respecting life, no one telling them, stop it, quit it. It's uh, not throwing a baby into a huge molech, but uh, it's sort of a, a localized, more secretive, personal little idol. He, 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 he. No one's telling him, knock it off. This ends up being that they take this idol up north, they burn down an entire city, and they keep the Avodah So it seems ridiculous that they would burn a whole city down of Avodah and keep Avodah but at the same time, the idea is that they didn't really understand Torah versus idolatry, and they kept it around. I also wanted to mention, interestingly, Micha is from Yosef, and these men are from Dun, which is a Gevura, and if you remember, Gevura and Yisod are these opposite Midos, Shimon and Levi fighting against Yosef. Yosef being open, but the corruption here gets to the point where Levi is not against him. Could have been his first name was Levi, strangely enough, in this bizarre wordplay humor here in Baba Basra. But if he was a Levi, he didn't actually hamstring Yosef here. But the Sheva Dun instead of protesting against what he did, they became adaptive. Instead of doing healthy Gabura, laying down the boundaries, being a substitute for a king, they their adaptive side comes along. Because people who are, have a meet of Gabura, they have to have very strict rules and boundaries how they keep it. If they're in a secular environment, they have if they or if they have susceptibilities, they're surrounded by princes or... Um, something they can grab, 
they are very tempted because they're so much into this rat race and selfishness and self-oriented and they're very adaptive. So here, these people from Sheba Dun very quickly adapt to this issue. And no doubt, Yonasan, son of Gershon, son of Manasseh. So it's Moshe, but with a nun to hide Moshe there. But Manasseh, that's Yosef. That's the Yosef brother tribe. No coincidence there. Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, I'm almost to an hour here, but I wanted to mention just quickly, based on the article, The Fury of the Fatherless, Mary Eberstadt. I don't agree. I do not agree with her. Um, what she wrote a year ago, again, she might have just changed her mind or about the details, but the 2020 summer riots, I believe, were riots and not mostly peaceful protests. Again, she may have written this so her article gets put out there, or she may have changed her mind. But, um, just quickly here, almost one in four children today grows up without a father in the home in the United States. African Americans, 65%. The vast majority of incarcerated juveniles have grown up in fatherless homes. Teens, mass murderers, the same. It's in their biography. Absent fathers or problems with the father relationship. It produces higher rates of truancy, psychiatric problems, criminality, promiscuity, etc. And people search for father substitutes. This is exactly the psychology of Micha. Are you my daddy? Are you my daddy? Oh, this is good. Oh, I'm going to create my father in my own image. Because that is what idolatry is. Instead of accepting the father figure and being inculcated by him, as Gidon did, People cannot accept it. Now, again, obviously, fathers need to have better behavior, good behavior, be trained, but it's important that they're there. Stay in the game. If you stay in the game, you can improve and fix it. People adapt. Minnesota Psychological Association made a study. A high percentage of gang members come from fatherless homes, possibly resulting from a need for a sense of belonging. People want to belong to something as well. Important for them sense of community. Biographies from far left and far right radicals have similar evidence. Second, the language of many of these organizations that are politically motivated, again, the ones that are uh, hijacked to be aggressive, not simple lobbying agencies, they have language on their websites that they're anti-father. And some of them had to take it down because so much pressure. Again, Shoptim. Father's not there. He's more interested in Ashtaros and Asheris and Lilith than in Ima. Okay, hot, Okay, I'm from Seattle. So there's a hotbed for riots out there. Those cities are known to be places for runaways and fatherless youth. More easily turn to be angry against society, government, constructive people. Okay, so I remembered. So these people, very often, they're hired to act like Amalek. And that, again, that's the Amalek-Midian dynamic. You know, powerful organizations, corporations, actually fund <laughs> radical communists or anarchists. A lot of these communists, communis, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of communism and um, radical communism that happened was actually funded by big banks and Wall Street. Lots of money and power to be made. 
So I was thinking, go to Amalek, right? So um, Amalek comes from his mother's Timna. She was a princess. She tried to convert to Judaism, but she was rejected by Avramate Sokniako. She replied she would rather be a handmaiden to the dregs of this nation, the Asav nation, Sa'ir, than to be a mistress to a, another nation. I'm sorry, she'd rather be a, the dregs of this nation, the lower part of the the um, Abrahamic nation than someone else. So she went and she had a child um, with Aliphaz to be Amalek. So you have a mother who was rejected by men and she believes she knows better than Avramitsukanyako, so she could have vitriol against men. And Asav, as a grandfather, is someone who shirked his responsibility. He's denigratory, he's nasty, he's aggressive. That could be a big turnoff. So Amalek could have been created from an anti father perspective. Okay, back to this article. Okay, even when people come from intact homes, they're affected to some degree when they're in the West. Institutions that once anchored teenagers are in free fall and collapse. There's evidence loosening of family ties, loosening of religious ties. So she keeps she goes through how when people don't have that sense that they need to like mavata themselves to the home, they have no sense of home and and accepting this paternal person. You don't accept uh, groups and and teams and institutions, even a healthy government. Weak, bo weakened bonds in one phase are not an isolated phenomenon. They encourage weakness elsewhere. Filial piety, meaning being humble and his botless to your family and father, perhaps is like a muscle that is strengthened by different forms of exercise. It's so true. I mean, sitting and being respectful, soaking in the wisdom, being glad someone is wise and official has a big impact on a person. And you know, has a big impact on a person. And I really feel that sitting and myself listening to rabbis give give over knowledge, I have a qualitatively different attitude when I'm at work compared to other people who are not Jewish, I guess didn't go to Shiva or if they're Jewish. But people have a hard time sitting there thinking, oh, maybe this is a wise idea. I should sit and really contemplate and listen. There's there's a certain narcissism that comes along with being far left. I guess also far right. Where it's like, I need to think of my idea. What's my you can, unique idea? Everyone's just talking about themselves. Okay. So just as there's been a shift in society since the 60s till now, when the father had to leave because of the welfare check would not be given and other an idea, similar ideologies, anti-men taught in university, so was it going on in the days of the Shoftim. The father not being around and the father and others being permissive. And next week, next podcast, we shall speak about the opposite, Pilegish Begiva, when men become stay, mainstays in the home, but they are too strict. Thank you for listening to the Seven Ways Podcast, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges on this Downstream from Religion series, Season 3. Feel free to email me with comments or questions, rabbibailey at gmail.com, B-A-I-L-E-Y, 
or rabbi at rabbibailey.com. Feel free to tweet, send a message. I'm happy to hear if I missed something, if you had an idea that you thought of during this time. This is especially poignant and powerful idea. Once again, I thought I'd speak for 20 minutes and it goes on for longer, but bless your heart for listening. Have a wonderful, blessed day.